welcome to How to Win the Lottery, Season 2, bonus episode, Devil House by John Darneal. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I am Shreds. Welcome to a bonus episode. Last week we had Secret History come out. This upcoming week we have, what book do we do after Secret History? Probably a short one. Was it Flor Yegi? Yeah, it may have been Flor. SDOD coming out next week. But Sadad. In between, we have a new release. This is not really a campus novel, though there are students in the novel. Over the last two years, I've been reading more than I have. Yep. And But I still feel like I'm not reading new stuff. Because I feel like there's, I mean, I have newer stuff. You for mean sure. stuff that's coming out? New releases, yeah. Okay. Whereas, like with movies or video games or whatever, I'm just like, oh, that's a new thing. I'm going to play that. I'm going to watch that, whatever. TV shows. Yeah. So I feel like, not that I'm caught up, but because we sort of have like a rhythm and a cadence for the podcast, there's more new releases that I'm looking forward to this year. And so I feel like this will be a nice way to do some bonus episodes for the pod. This book came out two months ago, a month and a half ago, or whatever. But, you know, still relatively new, still relatively zeitgeisty. I think. Talk about I it. think. Very few people read a new book within a month of its coming out because a lot of people take longer than a month to read a book anyway. So I think you're within the right to say that this is a new book. It's not even a short book either. It's like 405 pages. And it's also um, it's a slow moving book. It, it sort of crawls along. I read the first 70 pages of this on a flight uh, about a month ago, and then I got distracted by the other books we're doing for the podcast, and I read the last 240 pages in the last three days. Wow. Yeah. I, I started reading it on February 11th. Yeah, I, I started the book before you, and I was like, I'm pretty far into it, and then you finished the book basically before I picked it up again. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a while since I've read it, so you're going to have to do most of the heavy lifting with regards to content here. Oh, boy. Because I've read, like, seven books or something Who's like that. What is and, that? Well... You know, I've read uh, at least one more for the podcast specifically since since True. we finished this. This is John Turniel's third novel, right? Fourth. Fourth? Well, he has the Masters of Reality, which is a 33 and a third. Um, uh, oh, about, which is, about Metallica? No, about uh, Black, Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. All right, guys, start the podcast. <laughs> that is, wow, you are a fucking nerd. I was thinking Master of Puppets. Yeah, sure. Which is a good album. Mm-hmm. It's no Master, good Master of Reality. But right. um, so he wrote that, which... Wait, I'm a nerd because I got them wrong? Yeah, because Black Sabbath is cool. Okay. And nerds are squares. You, you are, like, consistently wrong about nerd stuff. Because you, you always call me a nerd, and I am clearly not. I'm the opposite of a nerd. I'm plagued by ennui. Yeah, you're, you're yeah played by other stuff too. That's for sure. So he's wrote he wrote four novels. Thirty three third is not a okay, novel. Okay, yeah, that, that's that's what I want to talk about. So normally thirty three and a third is works of criticism, um, written from a journalistic point of view about a particular album. About a particular album, and uh, Darnell's uh, thirty three and a third is that, but it's also a narrative. It is a uh, story about a kid who gets sent to a lock treatment facility and while he's there his uh um his therapist um is asking him to write about things that he loves so one of the things that he decides to write about is masters of reality um and then a bunch of other stuff happens and then and the novel is narrated from his adult perspective after having found that notebook again is it did he write this before wolf and white van yes and then he wrote universal harvester Yes. And a devil house. Yes. That 33 and a third sounds good. It's really good. I don't think I've read any of those. I think I've talked maybe about there's like the boss fight battle series that's kind of like that for video games where it's people writing about a specific video game. And yeah, that's the type you would read those books if you are a nerd. <sighs> you got me. <laughs> I never said that I wasn't a nerd. I just said you were. Yeah, right. Anyway, so you're wrong are. on half of those. So his fourth book, fourth novel, yeah, three and a half, four, whatever. But I've read three of them. You read all four. Mm-hmm. Where does this rank for you? Because we've talked. The reason I bring it up is because I think we've mentioned multiple times on the podcast, Darnell. Because I feel like you, he's another author that you. I didn't. I think I knew of the Mountain Ghost. I never really listened to the Mountain Ghost before yeah. we were friends, and like I didn't know he was an author. And so he's one of the people that, you know, one of my probably favorite authors, like five, of the five, maybe five favorite that you've brought to me. He's yeah. in there because he's a yeah. great writer. So what are you asking? What, Where's what? it rank for you among the four? I, it's hard to, really hard to say. Because uh, they're all kind of, at least the three that I've read are like of a type. 
Yeah, and what type is that? Explain it. Um, somber and serious and slow moving and melancholic, but also like optimistic in a way. Life affirming. Yeah. But also they, they tend to revolve around, um, teenagers who are in situations, uh, where maybe it feels like the world has turned on them in some way and they're leaning on counterculture things, whether that be heavy metal or horror movies or, uh, in this case, kind of, kind of those too. Yeah. Well, this one is, is very specifically leaning into, uh, like this sort of semiotics of, of, uh, true crime and satanic panic specifically. Yeah. So what is devil house about? Uh, devil house is about a, true crime writer who is moving into a house where a uh, double homicide has taken place years earlier decades earlier decades earlier and he is there to construct a new true crime novel and while while there like we get insight into his other works and ideas about story and 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 narrative so a lot of a lot of like what this book is about is the structure which is how would you how would you say it's structured so it's structured i texted you the only book that i've read that's like this is cloud atlas Mm -hmm. which i think is not entirely dissimilar in style or structure or the physical structure is the same but also like cloud atlas is all about the interconnectivity of all things and i think that there's that at play here too yeah there's a difference in scale for sure because that spans centuries and spans 25 or 30 years continents yeah Yeah. space whatever um it's seven chapters and the first and the last are from the writer's perspective although it changes well yeah the last one is from uh his childhood friends but they're about but he's the main character he's the main character the second and the sixth are about this woman no that's not true is it? Yeah, it is. The second and the sixth, again, changes perspective, but it's about the the white witch yeah. who was a school teacher who was had her apartment broken into and was assaulted and she defended herself but kind of went extreme, stabbed these kids like 37 times, chopped up their bodies, tried to dispose of it, got caught. So that's chapter two. And then chapter six is a letter that the writer receives from the mother of one of the kids. Yeah. Chapters three and six are about the titular devil house. Three and five. Three and five. Sorry. Who's the numbers guy here? You're the numbers guy here. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Three and five uh, are about- I, I, uh, The reader should know that I got a perfect score on my math SATs, while Joey, I think, maybe didn't even take the SATs, and he's a bit of a dummy. Let's keep going. Let's roll this along before you try to fact check any of that. <laughs> <laughs> three and five are about the titular devil house, and which is the house that the writer is living in now, was a like an adult film shop monster adult x or something porn store that went out of business and these kids kind of not moved in but like used that as a like treehouse basically mm-hmm. and drew a bunch of devil imagery and then the slum lord who was selling it and the guy who was going to buy it got murdered while visiting there and then the middle 20 pages are wildly different apparently on kindle than it is in, in the actual physical <laughs> book where it's like old english like king arthur shit well the yeah what well, i i meant the font is old is old english yes it's written in english yeah yeah you it's, can just, it's, you can ri- it's it. written in like a sort of pigeon uh version of of like modern early modern english which kind of makes sense as you read it in the middle of this book and then really kind of makes sense if you I think that's the benefit to me reading most of the book this week. It's like that was still fresh in my brain. Yeah. Like if I read this over the course of a month, I'd be like, castles? I don't understand. Yeah, it's kind of fuzzy to me. It's a little murky in the background. That's why. So. You're here to do the heavy lifting with that stuff. All right. Here we go. All right. I got nothing. I got nothing. (laughs) So uh, what – let's see. What did you – like about this book or find moving or or what well you i want i want to i want to ask you first because you described it when you finished it and i was maybe like a hundred pages in it. you said it's a beautiful book yeah why do you think it's a beautiful book because i feel like from the outset a book about true crime and murder 
and sort of the outcasts of society, beautiful and beauty is not necessarily the phrase or the descriptor you would pair with that. Yeah, I think I think especially once you get toward the very end of the book, it starts asking you for um, maybe an uncommon empathy. Um, and How do you mean that? The, like uh, empathy for people in in our world that are often leaned away from. Uh, that we that we uh, pass by and don't um, don't think about their plights or or uh, are willing to uh, believe that their plights are somehow self caused, um, and the book asks us to consider them as human beings who have a right to their spaces and and to like they may be unhoused or they may be. Uh, indigent or or however however you want to phrase that but they deserve the rights that everyone everyone else deserves which should feel like an uh common and easy thing but i think it's it's often not and the book predecesses all of that with a sympathy for teenagers that are like that teenagers that are often left aside in society and are often uh you know beleaguered by things like unsafe homes and uh, unsafe schools and a world that seems to be against them at, at every turn. So it's a lot of it is about finding a safe place, a place that's yours, and how um, that place can be such a deep comfort when it's there. And then, and then when it gets taken away from you, what happens? Yeah. What I think is interesting, I think a lot of people don't, take the time to think about is that over the last I mean I think probably for decades now but especially over the last like five or ten years I think largely due to Netflix true crime has become every a lot of people's favorite thing and I would say specifically white women's kind of favorite thing yeah and the the ID channel or whatever that is yeah um and Nancy Grace and Nancy Grace right who's a monster like the Jean Benet Ramsey stuff and mm-hmm. you know Lacey Peterson and all these where it's like a pretty woman is missing or murdered and like it becomes headlines. And I think there's a tendency to, especially when you compulsively consume anything, but this in particular, you forget that these are people. And I think that the the novel subverts the writer in a way that we'll get to at the end. But like, you don't think about when you watch a thing or read a thing or follow a story like, oh, yeah, that kid's mom was in, like, a terrible situation. And, like, she's a person. And, like, yeah. she'll forever be remembered as the mother of the kid who, like, broke into – because there's even, like, thing, like, the in this novel, the, the true crime book that he writes about the White Witch, the teacher who murders the kids and gets arrested, becomes a movie and becomes, like, this phenomenon or whatever – and the mom and the writer agree that, like, the story is about the teacher. Like, this happens to her. Like, she's the victim, but also she's not the only victim. The son is the victim, but also the mom's a victim because, like, her life is irrevocably changed, too. And so yeah. I think that there's a tendency to be like, oh, my God, can you believe, like, she like she snapped and she killed you. Like, like she's right. whatever. But there's, like, the ripple effect. And I feel like this kind of, to some extent, like, condemns true crime. And it's just like, we're... Yeah. This is this is not something we it, should it, it glorify. Can, it condemns like rubbernecking. Um, yeah, and and I you know the the way what you just said was put to me in a graduate class was. Um, so you're saying what I said, but smarter. Well, I I, I don't I, uh, yes. I, I don't think smarter, but like condensed into a single sentence is that if you tell enough of anybody's story, they become a sympathetic character. Sure. It's easy to say that. That's a really hard thing to practice, right? We have a difficult time thinking of people who, especially people who are murderers, right? Remember, like, like when you think of Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris's mothers or, or fathers yeah. or, or whatever, like, we don't, we don't think of them. But they knew those kids when they were babies, mm-hmm. right? They knew those kids as people who, like, loved ice cream and, uh, you know, wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese and loved, like, cartoons. There's – I don't know if I highlighted it because I didn't take notes, but I highlighted a bunch of things. But there's a passage that is in Chapter 6, which is the back half of The White Witch, which is her – a lot of it is just this like ten page letter that she writes to the author, and he's kind of reading through it or whatever. Well, the the implication in the book is that the letter is like 
hundreds of pages. Oh, for some reason I thought ten, but like it's it's very long. It's it's it came in inside oh, right, yes, a package yes, yes. that's like she was in writing for thirty years or something. Yeah, and revising. She, she sends it out. She and and she can't find him, so it gets sent back to her, and she spends years revising it and sending it out again. But she says something along the lines of like, because the the cops call her in for que- not questioning, but like just, like just to talk to her. Mm-hmm. And like, is this your son's necklace? And she like realizes it's his and like an evidence bag and she screams and screams and screams. And then her abusive husband is like on the way there. This is the author speaking. How could I know what it was like for a teenage girl to have a baby boy and to do her best all her life for her child, but to never be good enough, never be strong enough, never be smart enough. And then to see her son grow into a teenager and begin to slip away in a hope you don't want to say pray, you know better that he could at least get out on his own and find a way for himself. And then it goes on to say something like, that person you put so much time into is just gone. And then like, what are you like the person you were living for? I think is the phrase they use. You're done. So like, she was like tolerating this abusive relationship with her husband for the son. And now the son is gone. Yeah. And it's like, nobody cares about her because she's not in the story. Right. And, and probably um, as happens with parents in these circumstances, I think of, for example, the mother of the, the boy that uh, killed all those people in Newtown. Right, the, that mother has been demonized yep. because he stole her guns, and and uh, even though I think he murdered her as well, but it's still people are still like, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's the villain here. She's one of the villains here. But there's something really uh, that I found really really moving that is like I think a turning point in the novel for me from that section, which is over and over again in that section she says. To him, because he wrote that story, she says, but how could you know that? How could you possibly know? You could never know what it's like to be me. You could never know what it was like to be Jesse. How could you know what it's like to be this abused boy, et cetera, et cetera? How could you know what it's like to be the mother of an, you know, but you couldn't put yourself in my shoes? Over and over again, she says that. And then when we get towards the end, she is like, uh, I don't remember the exact words here, um, but there's like this really cynical moment where she's like blames gene cup the the other kid that's not jesse and she like all of her empathy is on her and her son on like she she feels victimized by this circumstance and she feels that her son has been victimized by this circumstance um and she knows gene cup a little bit because she's she reflects on how he was nice to her he was like a charming presence in their house and stuff like that but she's willing to and she also remind to him she reminds her of when she fell in love with her husband. Okay. Like as the rebellious kind of which, like. Which could be a reason why she's so angry at him yeah. too. Because he he represents, yeah. he's a symbol of this. But she she shifts blame to him and, and, and blames the the uh, her son's death and, and uh, the white witch stuff on Jean. Without giving him the empathy that she's asking of everyone else for herself and her and her son. And it just shows that like in all of these circumstances, in every true crime circumstance, we're blinded by context. We're blinded by our own personal interest mm-hmm. in it. We're blinded by all of the context that the media surrounds us with. I think, like, the the thing that I think of all the time with this, oh, it's, ne- like, honestly, never that far from my head is O.J. Simpson. Because we never, nobody ever talks about Ron Goldman. Yeah. Like, it's all, it's like, sometimes you might talk about Nicole Brown Simpson because she has O.J.'s name and there's that history there. But, like... Ron Goldman is not an interesting character. I would guess that most people who are familiar with with OJ don't even know who Ron Goldman is, wouldn't know the name, wouldn't recognize it. And honestly, now they might most know the name for like the legal battles after the fact that are just about like recouping the lawyer fees and stuff like that, right? So like it becomes a copy of a copy of a copy. I don't know if this was the quote that you were referring to, but it ends with this thing I I have highlighted Jesse drifting into Gene's orbit, but so lonely that anyone who showed him kindness became his favorite person in the world, so hungry for friendship that he was a sitting duck for a boy like Gene Cup. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly it. What does a boy like Gene Cup mean? If 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 like Jesse, like if if you had deployed that exact phrasing, a boy like Jesse, she the response to that would be like, well, we don't have the whole context for what a boy like Jesse is. What makes a boy like Jesse? How does a boy like Jesse happen? Yep. Right? And the answer is all of the horrific stuff that she's already told us about abuse and about um, her, his detachment from the family because he's afraid and all of these things. It also makes me think about this thing that I think we'll probably end up reading for a module in the future because it's one of my favorite things written in the last, I don't know how long, but it's a graphic novel. 180 no- years. 
it gets one of my favorite things that I've read in the last 180 years of my life. Um, it's a graphic novel by Durf Backdurf called My Friend Dahmer, which is a, a movie. Yeah. Did you see that movie? No, I didn't see the movie either, but it was it's written by uh, a guy who was a childhood friend of Jeffrey Dahmer. And it walks you through Jeffrey Dahmer in high school. I did see the movie. It walks you through Jeffrey Dahmer in high school. And it's heartbreaking because it shows you like this is a person that was incredibly sick, a person that could have been helped at any moment. The people in his orbit that could have helped him just weren't paying attention. I did not like that movie. Yeah. My snarky review on Letterboxd is serial killers are people too, apparently. Like, I feel like the movie probably probably did not do an effective job of like, but that's the same thing, right? It's just like, they're trying to humanize a notable, noteworthy, famous serial killer. Yeah. And the point is maybe that you shouldn't need to humanize him because he is human, right? He's been monsterized by, you know, by his acts. Sure. Like he's definitely guilty of those crimes. He's definitely did terrible things, but... You know, we're a community, and you are responsible for the people around you, and you are responsible for helping people when they need help. Otherwise, how can any of us get better, right? I think what's particularly interesting about Devil House is, in the true crime of it all, I feel like the the Devil House stuff itself is not especially satisfying. Okay. And I think... Part of that is because it's the novel. It's it's there's the twist at the end. I think part of it is that it's the narrative that he's kind of researching and writing now, so it's not whatever. And I think everything you were just talking about with the White Witch and also the Dahmer and a turn, like the human element of it is, I think, more affecting in the White Witch stuff. I think the two and six, I think, is more. There's more pathos maybe i think or different kinds well i think i think so too because i think she the mom janna gives him the perspective that is necessary for him to alter the story in the way that he ultimately does which is now we're getting toward the end of the book and i don't think we talked about this yet but the ultimately what the story ends up being right which i think and i think this is why it explains why devil house sort of feels or didn't feel satisfying to me and felt like it was missing something Mm -hmm is because we find out in the final like 10 pages that much of what we've read, which is ostensibly some kind of edited manuscript of like what he's trying to get published, is fictionalized. It's Will Inventing Jack in You Shall Know Velocity. Yes. Check out season one, episode, I don't know, five, four, three? No, uh, uh, three. Three. The entire character that the town was just like, oh, this weirdo outsider new kid did it. He never existed. One of the core main four, the only girl in there, she didn't exist. One other person is a completely different person altogether. And it's done to, he says, to protect these people. But it's like, protect from what? Like, it's... Well, and he invented the girl because he didn't want Alex's life to be as lonely as it was. He wanted to fill out his life with other people because he was a person that was basically totally alone in the world. And I think what's... What's particularly damning about this is you think about real true crime stuff where the jinx with Robert Durst and the burp and like the the filmmakers like not sharing with the police that like he confessed so that they could have like the narrative moment mm-hmm. or you, you think of other things that like don't like like serial the podcast i felt like one was one of the most irresponsible acts of journalism that I, and also wasn't narratively satisfying cuz like she yeah. just ran out of story and like yeah. she just like well there are parts during that when she just starts accusing people of murder and it's just like because he wore parachute pants like and he dressed like Dennis Rod he wasn't acting like how you think a black guy should act in high school what the fuck are you talking about right. sarah Koenig? And I feel like the novelist in this book is just like, yeah, that's what people want. They want like a satisfying thing with like twists and like good guys and bad guys and like, and his friend is just like, the fuck is wrong with you? Well, he's saying, and he's like, I, he, he, what does he say? He says he's looking for that wow moment, um, and it's like, you know, paid for the sheets on his bed and the thread counts pretty high. Yep. Like, he, he recognizes that what he's doing is not necessarily ethical, and so he tries to move away from that in, in a version of more personal ethics and, and sort of radical political belief that the people who did the murder were justified in, in, their, in their murder because 
they were enacting uh, the Castle Doctrine, which is this sort of standard ground yep. law um, that even though they were, I guess, homeless, are they, are they homeless? They, they're, they're... I think one kid in particular, because he even says like, oh, I'm going to go back to Sacramento. He's like, because if I tell them the truth of like, I don't know where I'm going to spend tonight, they're going to be depressed and nobody wants to be depressed. But this is, is that the fictional version of it? Yeah. Okay. But the real version in the, in the real version, at least one of them, they're is, also yeah. indigenous. And, and so like, he's saying like, look, they didn't have a home, but this was their home. They may not have owned it, but like by all other terms, they, they, uh, they lived there. It was the four walls that made them feel safe. They literally made it their own. They made it their own. And like, just because you're a landlord and because you told the deed to a place that doesn't make it your home. And would the world have been any worse if they had just let it go and let these kids have the place? There's a two-season show on Netflix that I hope comes back, but I feel like it's gone. But like American Vandal, which is a mockumentary, fictionalized version of True yeah, Crime. Yeah, okay. Where are we going with this? I think everybody loves the first season because it's really funny and like the dicks, the drawing the uh, dicks or yeah. whatever. But I feel like the second season was so satisfying because it's like it's the exact itch of a true crime with the setup and the payoff and like everything. I think I think it's beautifully told. Yeah. And I think... It's less funny is, is why people I think it's like less it funny, much. but I think it's better. I think yeah, it's in every way it's better. But I think what's why it works is because it's fiction, mm-hmm. and our human brains are wired to like want to seek closure, right? But like life is messy, and so if you just tell this story about these like three homeless kids who became three or two homeless adults or whatever, and like one of them died and one can't find one or whatever, like. That's depressing. People don't want that. It's just like, oh, no, it was this outsider kid. And these were the band of four. It was like, stand by me or whatever. It's just like, what what is going on here? Right? So I understand where he's coming from that, like, wanting good guys and bad guys and closure and justice. That's not how things go. Like, it's just these two people were murdered by someone. Yeah. It sucks. But, like. and it's, it's But it's about, you know. Uh, narrative and how all narrative has its own bias by what stories you choose to tell and whose perspective you choose to tell them from and what details you include, what details you absent. Um, There's, there's all, all of these things make up uh, popular consciousness of a story. And he has an opportunity to tell a truth that nobody would be interested in. And that could be of danger to to Alex, who could be imprisoned and and mm-hmm. go to jail, which he doesn't want to do because politically he's on this guy's side. Right. Yeah. Do you have any experience with true crime? Like, are you is is there any like true crime that you've been particularly moved by or really enjoyed? I really liked the staircase. Okay. And then when I came back, because like that was I think like, maybe the first one that like people, I don't know, like I I wasn't there when it happened, but I I was early on it. Yeah. And then it, like, got revived by, like, Discovery or ID or something. And, like, because the staircase, if you, if you don't know, is about a guy who was accused of murdering his wife. And he's like, no, I was out by the pool. And there was an owl. Like, there was this whole, like, yeah, owl yeah, theory yeah, and yeah, whatever. Because yeah, no. the, there was, like, a little fiber or something by her head. Yeah, or there's, like, a feather or whatever. Yeah. The whole thing is, like, this 10-hour setup of just, like, oh, maybe he didn't. Like, it's the whole thing. Maybe he didn't. Like, it seems, like, overwhelming. Like, like yeah, the guy just killed his wife. But, like, maybe he didn't. And then it comes back for, like, three more hours after the fact. And they, like show other stuff that they didn't show. She's like, oh, no, the guy clearly did it. Like, it was very clear. But, like, there's this something, like, because I think there's the fear also that, like, you don't want to be accused of something you didn't do and just the reasonable doubt or whatever, right? Yeah. Have you seen the episode of Always Sunny, the Dennis Reynolds making a murderer? I think so. Where they're, like, uh... I mean, I've seen every episode. It's, like... it's, it's structured exactly like a true crime documentary. And there's this idea that he killed his wife, who the the one who's like, wants to be a cat. They go through all these things, making him look guilty. And then at the end of the episode, they're like, okay, well, we've got like three more hours of that that we have to we have to like fill out to make, you know, a bunch more episodes. And he's like, but you have the security footage of her falling off of the roof. Like, you know that I'm not guilty because you have the security footage. Right. Um, But yeah, it's like about the specific the ways that we draw stories out to, to maximize dramatic tension. What was that one that was on Netflix like six years ago that was huge? Uh, making 70? a Murderer, right? Was that the guy and his, the uncle and his nephew? Yeah. Yeah. Where 
I watch it. I'm just like, this feels like irresponsible. And like, I don't know. The worst is the West Memphis three documentaries. The three of those, the paradise lost documentaries. Cause very clearly Damien Eccles and Jesse Baldwin and the third kid whose name I forget, even though I should remember because this is part of what we're talking about, um, clearly didn't do it. But by in, in, in the second one, which is like a three hour long documentary, they accuse this guy. This documentary is essentially like, but what if it was this guy? It really seems like it was this guy. They spend the whole documentary building up the fact that they think that it's this guy. And then the third documentary comes out and they're like, new information proves that it's not that guy. And it's like, so you just let it, like in the years between these yeah. two documentaries, you spent like a whole bunch of people that saw that on HBO were on the internet talking about it and talking to each other and just going like, and that guy's a fucking murderer and he's yeah. walking free. And it's just like, that guy's not a murderer. He didn't do any, he's not, he's, not guilty. Yeah, I feel like I I get sucked into true crime when it becomes, in the like, like when it becomes a cultural like movement when everybody's talking about a thing. Yeah. Like the summer that serial came out, and like I started listening to season two, I'm like, this is terrible. That was the Bo Bergdahl one, right? Bo the Bergdahl? A, a- that wall guy. Yeah. yeah, I was just like, this doesn't like you don't you're not a good. You're, and I just I don't I don't like it for a number of reasons. I feel like it's exploitative. Sure is. I'd rather have narrative because I feel like again the closure thing or whatever, and I also just. The ongoing work, like the like the people who get rich, like the Nancy Grace of it all, where it's your people go home and watch her for an hour or more every day, like with no new update. It's just like the the news cycle. It's just like I don't how. And she has to find a new way to make it yeah. appealing to you and make it yes. like seem like, you know, her. Uh, I think Nancy Grace became super famous because of Casey Anthony, right? I think so. Yeah, which is like another thing where it's like okay, like Casey Anthony has a story that is. I don't I, I I don't I haven't read anything about Casey Anthony. Um I suspect that if we dug really deep and started really looking at Casey Anthony, she would become a sympathetic character. Probably. Well, I think that's the same thing where you should practice more empathy because you'd never know what somebody is going through. Of course. Yeah. For as far as true crime is, is concerned, like the classics of the genre, like In Cold Blood by Truman Capote is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer, fantastic. More recently, um, People Who Eat Darkness. I forget who wrote that. Uh, but that's a, that's a really, really compelling story. Um, and I read, when I was in Los Angeles, uh, in, you know, when I was like 23, I read uh, The Night Stalker, the Philip Carlo book, which was really fascinating because there were a lot of people around me that had experienced Richard Ramirez in real time. And so they would see me reading that book and they would tell me their stories of what it was like to be in Los Angeles when that was happening. And like, that was really compelling to me. And I think that book does an interesting thing because it does make like Richard Ramirez is guilt was guilty, but it does a really good job of making you look at the legal process and things like that. And you look at a legal process, even with someone who's guilty and you can think like, they're not being fair to him. This is not like how it should go. Right. This, they should be treating him better than they are. The the system is still not working, even though it essentially, quote unquote, did its job. Right. There's still abuse of this system and people are not being treated well within it. Yeah. And I think that like, I don't want to like be more okay with, but I think that, I think the distance of the separation of time allows for easier digestion like i i gotta love the movie zodiac you know once upon a time in hollywood about charles manson like i think stuff that happened in the 60s and 70s is no no less horrific than happened stuff happens today but i feel like you have the like separation of like whatever you're not trying to react to things in real time and try to find answers and like amateur detectives and whatever and like i'll be gone in the dark i read the book that meredith stallinger wrote and didn't finish before her passing and then like sort of amateur detectives and like the other people that she had recruited like solved that and like that's awesome but yeah. like i was also reading that and, like i knew because i i read it after i knew the story was going to be adapted or whatever and like i think that i mean she she solved the cold case essentially but also it became it rose problems because she passed away but i was just like so you're just gonna put this out in the world unfinished and it's like here's the thing here's some theories it's yeah, just like, well, that, I, I think, still feels kind of like weirdly irresponsible. Right. Another thing about true crime that is irresponsible is that um, the people who are writing it are essentially not journalists and they're also not police officers. And so like that, not like I mean, journalists are hella corrupt and you know how 
I feel about police officers, <laughs> but um, like they're not bound. They don't. It seems like they're not bound by anything. They can just write whatever they feel like writing. Well, that becomes a, a key thing in the last like ten pages about the corroboration, like right, where yeah, his yeah. agent calls him and just like, can you verify any of this? He's just like, no, but like, do we need to? Basically, yeah. And she's like, yeah. Yeah, we do. Well, because he's the stuff that because he's inventing people. Yeah. He's not. He's not like, you know. There, I think there are ways that you can present something in in a way that is still like would pass a. It's not names check. and likeness have been changed to protect the innocent. It's like Siraj did. It's like that guy didn't exist. Like you can't just make up like an Arabic name, like a Middle Eastern. I, yeah, name. that that is a, a a little problem that I had with the book, right? Which is that like he invents this. Uh, minority character to deflect from from i, I mean probably uh, but, it's in the, but that devil house takes place in the 80s right and it's it, it's it's playing on stereotypes of the time yes. to uh uh you know to deflect from the white kids mm-hmm. well it's like we talked about in secret history mm. where like there's the guy at the gas station that's true yeah the episode that just came out this past week i hope you listen to it where it's just like yeah, yeah. i don't know like it was like you know uh the guy the white kid yeah bunny was there and it was three arab guys it's just like Wait, hold on. What? <laughs> so not only are you lying to like get attention, but like you're also being like racist and like planting the seeds of racism in other people's minds. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think that's necessarily your. I didn't have a problem with that. I understood why. No, I, I yeah, I don't. I, uh, yeah, it's something worth thinking about. And and when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, that seems like something that would happen at the time in yeah Milpitas, California. Which is another thing that we should talk about is the River's Edge, right? Like so these it, are two towns that apparently. Darniel grew up in Milpitas, really. Milpitas and San Luis. Obispo. I know San Luis Obispo, yeah. Because so these are two towns. The wiki for this is very short; it's like two sentences. It's one about like what it's about, and it's like just a true crime writer, blah blah blah. It's based on where Darniel grew up, and also like the re- reception to it is pretty positive. But like, it's it's interesting though that putting it putting it in uh, Milpitas is interesting because you get um, what I'm presuming is true about like how that town reacted to River's Edge. Which is, they were all just like, fuck this. That's not us. That's not what we're like. That's not what happened. That's not what those kids were like. That's not what happened. But there's the interesting element to it, which I, I'm sure it's happened somewhere, where there's this national media attention, it becomes a movie, and like just as they're like, all right, we can finally kind of sort of maybe start to move on with our lives, it happens again. And that's why like he writes about like everybody's just like, Sweep this under the fucking rug. We're not going to choose. Not going to accuse anybody. We're just going to like nothing. No stories. Nothing. We just yeah. we can't let this happen again. Yeah, it's like if there were a, another school shooting in Columbine, they yeah. would just be like, "What? What? How? Right. Yeah." Maybe Meg's email okay. will inspire some thought. We have a lot email address lottery at cageclub.me. Our reader Meg wrote in her reaction to Devil House. What's the length of this email? Medium, medium okay. long. She she can uh, she can go both ways. You know, she sometimes it's we get. 15 pages of email and sometimes it's like three sentences saying that college novel was boring i will tell you sorry blake i will tell you <laughs> that it ends the classic meg all in all blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> Cla- classic egg the tldr sunny side up classic egg it's kind of incredible says egg how much yeah. of a turn this book took in the last three pages i'd read up to the last chapter yesterday and i would have described my interest in this book as purely academic it does feel like we're giving her homework Every single week. We are. And that's, I'm fine with that. She's likes being a student. She, like you, is a nerd. It was a condemnation of the true crime genre. Chick, chick, check. <laughs> okay. Chick, chick, check. And did a lot of work with perspective and narrator. But up until the last three or so pages, I didn't find it beautiful or moving. I mean, it's still a condemnation of true crime. And the idea of true crime genre being a type of voyeurism but the fact that the reveal, quote-unquote reveal, at the end is done with a switching character for the first time, something that could have feasibly be said in workshopping circles to be a, quote, mistake, was very moving. Is that really the first time we change, shift perspective in the characters, or no? It feels like a lot of the back half is kind of slightly askew. Well, because you get Jana's, I mean, he the, the perspective is Jana's letter. letter, but it's the first time that an I character yes okay is like where it's clearly someone other than gauge narrating yes because like the second chapter white witch is talked to is told to you you were the type of person who did this you went to the grocery store to do this right the last three pages where you go from quote what the fuck to everything falling into place in a satisfying and sensitive way were very effective i thought i was gonna have to ask bobby what the point of that weird medieval section was but it came (laughs) together so nicely the condemnation of true crime feels a little severe at first, with Gage saying that he, Gage being the writer, 
saying that he's not going to tell the story, but by the last page, the reader understands his perspective completely. I loved how the reader thinks that the lesson Gage took from Jesse's mom's letter was to not lead the writer to explicitly state what they think happened, but in actuality, it leads him to write a fiction on what his publishing house wants to read so he can protect the people who need protecting. I think the, quote, friend was going to turn out to be Siraj. I'm kind of glad that we didn't know anything about the last narrator. It seems to respect the character's privacy. Yeah, that's true. I also think that the um, uh, the general lack of... Uh conflict in in its conclusion i don't because I, I, I it like defies narrative expectations um which you love well i think darniel does that in his other books as well yeah. right like universal harvester turns into something very very different than what you initially expected well, to be. universal harvester is about a video store with like menacing sort of like faces of death shit spliced into vhs tapes and then it becomes not that at all yeah a book that's like kind of about moms and and like uh yeah it rules <laughs> yeah and then and then uh um you know wolf and white van is the same way which is like there's this horrific act of violence that happens off page and then the book walks you through and you you never really come to that act of violence again the tension maintains there's no like you're never satisfied with what happens yeah. within it yeah I think in in this book we kind of have more of an ending than than those other books, but it's still like is doing things that are, uh, you know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't follow like the the branching path of a of a normal novel. Well, it's almost like an anti ending because the book starts with this: we're following this guy buying a house to move in to write a novel, and the the novel the the devil house, not his novel, but the novel we're reading ends with him not publishing the novel. So it's like, instead of like the gratifying, like he went to a place, he did a thing, he finished the thing. It's just like, he's not going to do the thing. Or maybe he will. And well, you never, you also never get that moment, right? Which in, in true detective would be the moment of the guy in his underwear, wearing the gas mask, walking across the field. Benny Ledoux. Um, I think it's Reggie Ledoux. Reggie Ledoux. <laughs> Reggie fucking Sorry. Ledoux. Sorry, Joey. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so you're a nerd. You're a TV nerd. Uh, God no, damn it! I'm not a nerd. Benny Ledoux is a um, terrible name. Reggie Ledoux, much better name. Uh, but the, you, you, you like are kind of expecting because you learn that this guy and the 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 buyer and the slumlord are murdered with a sword. Yeah. In 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 this like epically crafted room filled with. And a pornography art installation that invokes Satan and like an avenging angel. And so like you expect this like avenging angel type to emerge from sort of like the womb of this art installation with the sword and fucking kill both of them. Um, and and you're denied that moment. You're, yeah. de- you're denied the satisfaction of that moment largely because the satisfaction of that moment is the voyeuristic thing that makes true crime a little bit evil. Right. And also, Gage, I don't know, knows what happened. So we, yes, exactly. we don't get to right. know the ending because he doesn't know the end. Right. And in, 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 in that sense, his ethics are kind of pure because he does, he, he's like very much like the method actor equivalent of a true crime writer. Like he tries to recreate the space and everything like that. Egg says, as I was reading this, there were a lot of threads or various notes I was planning on including, but I feel like most of that melts away because of how the book ends. For example, I tried to keep track of when characters were brought up or introduced because it seemed important, but after finishing the book, those initial mentions seemed to serve almost as a stream of consciousness injection. Gage needs to keep the illusion of the story alive, and the only way that it could keep going the way the publishers thought it would go would be if there's another player introduced. Seth's introduction seems abrupt. Quote, it has to be Seth. Almost like Seth's a character who was talked about before and is getting reintroduced. If Gage needs to inject the next, quote, clue to move the fiction forward, it fits that it would happen unnaturally in a way that the reader will remember once they find out that Seth doesn't or didn't exist as they thought he did. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to mention is that I found it interesting that the section from Jesse's mom's POV evoked more feelings of guilt than the section about the actual villain of the story, which I think is we talked about earlier. Well, yeah, I, I don't, um, villain is such a, is such a nebular word there. Yeah, who was the villain in that? We don't know. Well, remember the, the maybe, maybe Gene. I mean, there's the quote from very early on in the book that says there are no, there are no, uh, villains in a, in a true crime story. There's the heroes and his, there's the hero and his victims. 
which is a fucking evil thing to say, kind of, but also like not because part of what this story is doing is it is eliminating villains, except for landlords who are villains, right? J.P. Prudhomme, property is theft. The closer you get to the past, the, the less believable this particular scene. I like that quote early on. Like, not that Jesse's mom was guilty of anything, but that she felt more guilt than, quote, the white witch did. It also subtly connected back to the quote at the beginning of the book, there aren't any villains in a true crime book. <laughs> there's the hero and there's his victims. The reader feels a sense of guilt as well, because the perspective of the initial portion of the white witch definitely adheres to that maxim. All in all, that concludes. <laughs> a good book, and I'm glad to have read it. All right. Yeah, I think I think it's a... Uh, you asked me much earlier which of these was my favorite, which of the Darnell books was yes. my favorite, I, I, and I didn't answer. Um, I've I've read Wolf and White Van more times because I taught Wolf and White Van. Yep. Uh, I think that that's my favorite. Um, Universal Harvester, I I have a soft, a real soft spot for because while I am not a nerd, I am a mama's boy. Um, so like I, I I do have like like that does. Uh, uh, touch me in ways that that these other other books don't. So I don't. I I, I the answer is that I don't know. I think I, I think maybe Wolf and White Van, but I I would put Universal Harvester in this one on on equal level. I think this is probably the most technically accomplished of his books. I feel like to sort of pivot into our next thing. I didn't think of casting for this at all. I didn't either. Wow. But I think this is probably the most easily adaptable of his three. Uh, maybe because I I feel like Wolf and White Van is tough. It's either – it's tough to do, I think, in an engaging way. I think that works better as a novel. Well, also, it would be hard to do because you have uh, – So much that's just like a guy in a room. And your main character is a mutilated face that yeah. is hard to put on screen and have it not be something that is manipulative or uh, exploitative or – you know, that's hard to do. Like, I always, growing up, loved Invisible Monsters, but, like, most of that is just from the perspective of a woman who blows her face off with a shotgun. Is that a spoiler? Maybe it is. I don't think she blows her face off with a shotgun, either. I think she, uh, I think uh, a can of hairspray explodes in a garbage can, and it, it hits her in the face. Maybe I should re- I'm not going to reread that book. You could reread that book in two hours, probably. Probably. I, re- I read, I reread Fight Club years ago in two hours, yeah. so. Um, but it's just like, how do you, you like, you can't have a, it's tough to have a mutilated character. Well, there's, you know, in uh, 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 the the most interesting of those is the guy in um, Under the Skin, the the uh, Michael Faber novels, uh, and and Jonathan Glazer. Um, I forgot that, that was a novel. Yeah, Jonathan Glazer movie with Scarlett Johansson because they they hired a guy who has uh, I forget what the disease is called, but he ha- he has uh, you know deformities, and um, it is like an opportunity to give people roles yeah. and have them. Uh, you can create empathy sure. in, in, in that way, showing like, hey, these are real people that have these things going on with them yeah. and also get those people a fucking payday. Yep, I agree. I think Universal Harvester would be fairly easy to adapt, but I think it's also tough. Like, I think this I think this is just I think this also goes in line with the like Spring Breakers fight club making a movie for a group of people that you're taking the task yeah that's i think that's exactly what it is yeah i think you would be like the next the must-see true crime blah 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 and then like they all leave like why do i feel bad yeah yeah it's like yeah yeah you are you are uh complicit in in the creation of this uh uh, art that exploits victims. I feel like this is also probably his longest. Like, aren't his other two novels like 200-ish pages? Like, they're both shorter than this. This is a... Yeah, I would say. Because I think when this came out, I'm like, oh, you want to read... Like, we can do this next week. You're like, I can't read that book. I'm like, how long? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's kind of kind of lengthy. Also, because I'm aware that the... Um, Content? I'm, I Well, I'm aware that his books read slow for me. Oh, okay. Which is not a complaint. I like when books read slow. Yeah. I have a tendency when reading stuff that as I get toward the end... I want to race to the end because I'm like excited and I want to be like see how it winds up. I'm sort of glad. I mean, I probably did that here too because I probably always do that. But like, I think if you like speed read the last few pages and miss key details, yeah. I can't imagine what you think of the ending. Right? Yeah, you're just like ah, oh, you didn't you didn't read the last three pages. I just skimmed them and then it's just like you you come to the conversation with a complete wrong uh, it, idea about everything that happened in the book. Yeah, because I like I read it and I'm just like. Did that really say what I think it? It said? wraps up remarkably quickly in the la- and at the very at the very end. Well, that's not un. That seems to happen 
that's not the first time in this podcast that this happened. I feel like there's been a couple times where it's like, and I'm trying to think of the example where it's just like, out of nowhere, just like, oh yeah, in the last like two pages, like it's just, it's a whole new thing. Yeah, like when Lee in prep um, brings in a shotgun and just shotguns Martha and and birds ate her face. And what's her name? Did you watch Preacher? Yeah, I I, I know ass face. So so that character is in that show. Yes. Okay. Because I know he's in the comic book, and but he's I've seen how he looks in the comic. He does not look like that in the show. Okay, so he because he's clearly based on the kid from uh, uh, Dream Deceivers who who shot himself. Uh, allegedly over a Judas Priest record, which is sort of what the Wolf and White Van stuff is based on, or feels like it's based on. I feel I feel comfortable saying that it's like inspired by. And also that uh, Mr. Show sketch about Titanica and the kid jumps in the vat of acid because they told him to. Well, I think that's based on yeah. the Judas Priest thing as well. I'm looking back at the books we did. Open City kind of has like a start. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If yeah. the last two pages, you're like, hold on, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Giles Goatboy, sort of, where it's like seven <laughs> pages. Yeah. Who know? Who knows what happened in Giles Goatboy? Loner, not quite, but Loner has a, a, a distinct twist toward the end. But I, I knew I knew that we had talked about it at some point. But yeah, it's like you missed that thing in, in Open City. We're just like, oh, so he was a rapist. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Right. Yeah, this is very abrupt. Yeah, I I could see it being made into into, into a film. Um, I wonder if any of his stuff. I'm sure it's been optioned. I'm sure his stuff has been optioned. At least Wolf and White Van has been. Because he's also, again, I mentioned sort of like vaguely before, but like he's the lead, he's a singer songwriter front man for the Mountain Goats. So like, he's, which is a band that people live and die by. They're they're a band whose fans are fairly rabid in the in the same way that like Neutral Milk Hotel fans are, or Phoebe Bridgers fans are, or you just did Neutral Milk Hotel like you did NYPD Blue. Yeah, that's how it's said. That's a future reference. That's how it's said. Neutral Milk Hotel. And as I always tell Jeff Mangum, if your Milk Hotel is neutral in times of oppression, then it actually sides with the oppressors. You know what I tell Jeff Mangum? What? Keep reading. Oh, you motherfucker. I can't believe you slipped it on me like that. Um, as far as I can tell, neither of his books or other things have been optioned. At least they're not on the wiki. Yeah, Today's Crime is is a, a little B&E, baby. I was living in a devil town Didn't know it was a devil town Oh, Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town And all my friends were vampires didn't know they were vampires. Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town. I was living in a devil town. Didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.